Let's pray together. Lord, you tell us that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, let your word, your light shine on us. In your word, let us see the light of the world, Christ. And let him shine through us to the world in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to be seated. When you imagine the manger scene, what do you see? What comes to your mind's eye when you think about the night of our dear Savior's birth? I want to suggest that in a lot of ways, our picture of the manger scene has been airbrushed over time. It's nostalgic for us. Oftentimes, I see pictures of the Thomas Kincaid Christmas card portraying the nativity in soft light with a picturesque stable on a beautiful hillside, warm and quaint. We think of this romanticized scene of Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus and these very well-behaved, well-groomed, nice-smelling animals, (laughs) shepherd boys with blonde curls and cute sheep. But oftentimes, this picture and the familiarity with the story breeds kind of a yawning indifference. The story is wonderful, it's heartwarming, but sometimes it feels irrelevant and indifferent from a lot of the issues that our world faces today. But this morning, in this season of Christmas, with a little bit of the magic passed by us, and we're kind of like, oh, we're still celebrating Christmas, everybody else is done with it, I want you to relook at the manger scene. I want you to look at the circumstances of Jesus' birth because what I want to suggest is it actually serves as an indictment to the darkness of this world. Think about this. Caesar Augustus was hungry for money. And so he sent out a uh, census to figure out who all that he ruled over so that he could tax them. And he was ruthless. He was worse than the IRS, right? Because he required everybody to go to their hometown. Man, woman, child, therefore making Mary, who was nine months pregnant, the most uncomfortable you could be, travel 90 miles. Maybe she had a donkey. The Bible doesn't say that. Maybe on foot, 90 miles. Could have taken as long as a week to get to Bethlehem. And then when Mary and Joseph finally arrive in Bethlehem, the hometown of Joseph and his ancestors, she goes into labor and not one single person is willing to give up their bed for a woman in labor. It's, one commentator said it's a bitter commentary on the state of the world that the king of the universe had to be born in a dirty, reeking stable. This wasn't some beautiful stable that was meant for house guests. This was a stable meant for stinky animals. And after Jesus is born, we see the darkest part of the story that we oftentimes don't even go over. We never hear about it on Christmas Eve. That would ruin um, the wonder and the beauty of the night. But Jesus and his family are hunted down by King Herod, who when he hears about the birth of a rival king, 
Even as a baby, he seeks to snuff him out. And he proceeds to go to that little town of Bethlehem and murder all the children two years and under that were born in the time range in which Jesus was born. Forcing Mary and Joseph to flee in the middle of the night to Egypt, the place of slavery, the worst place in the collective memory of Israel, until Herod eventually dies and it's safe to return. All of a sudden, the manger isn't so cute anymore, is it? Is it? It serves actually as a mirror to the brokenness of the world at that time. And it serves as an indictment to the fallenness of humans. Of the big powers in the world, kings and rulers, but also ordinary people like you and me. And how we oftentimes aren't willing to put ourselves out for the sake of others. Martin Luther had this very convicting um, uh, quote that I'm going to read to us because it really hit home this morning. Martin Luther writes, There are many who, when they hear the poverty of Christ, are almost angry with the citizens of Bethlehem. You're like, what is wrong with them? That they would put a mother in labor in a barn. And we denounce their blindness and ingratitude and think if I had been there, I would have shown the Lord and His mother a more kindly service and would not have permitted them to be treated so miserably. But they do not look by their own side to see how many of their fellow humans are in need and which they ignore in their misery. Who is there upon the earth that has no poor, miserable, sick, erring ones around Him? Who does not exercise His love to those? Who does not do to them as Christ has done to them. Ouch. Martin Luther really knows how to cut to the sinfulness of man. And the reason I cut that out of my sermon, the reason I'm including it is because this morning at our church, um, there was a man who slept under the tent. A young guy in his 30s who shared with me that he struggles from addiction it's led to brokenness in his family. And so he's going to town to town and seeing where he can find hospitality. And he sat down across from me while I was spending the last 15 minutes kind of internalizing the sermon in my office. And he said, do you have time? And I wanted to say, no, I don't. I'm not as ready as I want to be for this sermon. But Martin Luther his quote haunted me, and I said, yeah, let's talk. And I got to hear some of his story and the beauty that Christ has broken into his life in the last few years. And he's still struggling with addiction, but Christ is shine on him. And then he said, what can I do for you? I'm not kidding. It seems like too good of a sermon illustration. This happened like an hour ago. He said, what can I do for you? And I said, can you pray for me? I'm not feeling as good about the sermon as I would like. And then he came over and laid his hand on my shoulder and prayed over me the most beautiful prayer. Spirit-filled prayer. But oftentimes, those people I'm too busy for, we're too busy for, or we think that, yeah, there's got to be something deeply wrong with them if they're sleeping under a tent during the Christmas season. And so, this picture of the manger scene serves for us as an indictment, 
as a mirror to the brokenness of the world. That we do live in a dark world. And we recognize that there's a darkness even within us. There's all sorts of staggering, sad, dark things that point to the world that we live in. The teen suicide rate I read recently was up 75% from 2006 to 2016. You know, we're oftentimes insulated from the darkness of the world. But there's sexual assault that happens in every community. There's lives that are torn apart and families that are torn apart by alcoholism and addiction. Marriages that are struggling. We do still live in a dark world. And if the world that Jesus stepped into 2,000 years ago, if the manger scene had something deeply relevant, deeply symbolic, deeply powerful to tell them that maybe the manger scene in the 21st century and the darkness that we face in our society and in our homes, maybe the manger scene is just as relevant as it always has been. It's not a cute story. But it's a story of God with us. That God comes down into the darkness. So today, I want to look at how Jesus' birth speaks to that darkness. Specifically, that darkness that we don't want to look at in our own lives or in our world. And can anything more than sentimentality be found at the major scene? Can true hope be found in a stable? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. We're in John 1. John 1. Starting in verse 1. This is John's account. This is on page 886. This is John's account of the, the nativity scene. So Matthew and Luke give an historical account. John gives a theological account. He peels back what's happening in the heavenlies. The, the spiritual implications of what happened when Jesus was born into the world. And don't miss it. This is just as relevant for our understanding of what happened on that night 2,000 years ago as the cuteness of the Luke story is. It says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word is that idea of logos. The idea of the, the Word. And in the Greek, for the Stoics at the time, in the contemporary time, the Stoics said that the world was made by the logos. And that was this impersonal reason. It was the idea of a, a reason, a concept. That that, that the world was made, and behind the world, there was reason that made sense out of the world. Similar to what a lot of people would say about our world that we live in, that there's concepts behind the world. Uh, maybe the concept of karma, that if you do something bad, you get something bad. Or the concept of math, you know, that there is this order to the universe. Or Darwinianism, the concept that drives the world is the survival of the fittest. And that's how that species evolved. That's how we got here. And so, John was picking up on the Greek thought, the idea of logos, but he takes it so much further than they did. To them, it was a reason that was behind the universe, a concept. But he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the beginning was logos. And then he says, and the Word was with God. And that word with isn't just in close proximity to God. It actually means that the word, the logos, was in relationship to God. And it's almost like a picture that is blurry at first. We're like, what is John talking about here? It becomes more clear in the next verse. And he says, the word was God. There we realize he's talking about the Son of God. The eternal preexistent Son of God. That Jesus was in the beginning... 
And Jesus was with God in the beginning, and Jesus was God in the beginning. And then it says this, He, all things were made through Him. That Jesus brought the universe into existence. That He wasn't a created one, that He was the Creator. He was God. And then it goes on and says, In Him, the Logos, in Jesus was life, and life was the light of men. And then here is the verse that we're going to plant, and I want you to to memorize in the midst of the darkness that you see on TV, in the midst of the personal darkness that you might be facing, this is one of the greatest promises that God has ever given us. And this is one of the greatest lies that Satan has ever told us, that what we're about to hear is not true. In verse 5 it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That the light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And everything in our world says that's not true. But God says this is what Jesus came to do. The light has not been overcome by the darkness. So no matter what you're going through, if you're despairing some relationship, if you're in a depression right now, if you cannot see the light, hear this promise. Cling to this promise that the darkness has not overcome the light. He says that this darkness is found in two places. Two main uh, themes in Scripture are uh, unpacked about what the darkness is. John unpacks them as the darkness of human evil within us. John 3, 19-20 says this, and this is the judgment, this is Jesus' words, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We see that. That people love the darkness, even though the light is available to it. I don't know about you all, but I see that in my own life. That even though I know the light of Christ that's available, I love my pet sins more. And I try to hide from God. So, the darkness is the human evil within us, but it's also the spiritual evil around us. That we don't just live in a purely physical world. And Paul unpacks this in Ephesians 6, verse 12. He says, For we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now oftentimes, a thing that causes breakdown in relationships is because we think that that person just must straight be evil. But we don't also realize that Satan is trying to lie through that person or get to us through that person or, or tear us down or break us down through that person. And so, John says, the light shines into that darkness, into the human evil within us and the spiritual evil around us. That, that is what Christ has come to do. And it says that the light shines in the darkness. And that idea of light shining is that it shines. It's an ongoing thing. It's like an ongoing dawning. It's not like one time, 2,000 years ago, God shone, there was a little light in the darkness. No, it is that He continually, continuously, never stops shining into the darkness. He never stops looking to break down injustice in our world or to break down the sin in our lives. He's come to bring conflict, to push back, to wage war on the darkness within us 
and the darkness around us in our world. And that promise is the darkness has not overcome it. One commentator says the tense of this word, the way this word is structured, that has not overcome it. That there's never been a single instance of such a defeat of darkness over Christ. That every time darkness comes into light, every time Satan tries to throw something at Christ, Christ every time overcomes it. St. Francis of Assisi says, there's not the darkest darkness in the whole entire world cannot overcome the light of a single candle. Think about that. We oftentimes shudder and shriek at darkness and we think so much about how dark the world is or maybe even about our own dark sin. But darkness is not substantive, is it? It's just the absence of light. Think about it. Light is an actual substance. It comes from a source. Now, oftentimes we forget that because of electricity. And we're like, where does this magical source of power come from? It comes from electricity. Um, But, in those days, they would have imagined when they heard light in the darkness, they wouldn't think of of a spotlight coming on. They would think of a candle or a lamp. That they would see a source. And if you've ever seen a light come into a dark room. The darkness flees every single time. No matter how small the candle is, the darkness always flees. And that's what we see, that the darkness has not overcome the light and will not overcome the light. Why? Because if you jump all the way down to 14, we see how the light came into the world. It says, in the world, and the Word became flesh, Lagos, the eternal preexistent Son of God became man. He became flesh. He became one of us. And in the midst of the darkness, we oftentimes do ask, God, do you know what it's like to live in our world? Do you realize how dark it is of what I'm going through or what I'm witnessing? And God can say beyond the shadow of a doubt, yes, I do. Because I became flesh. I have hungered and thirsted as you've hungered and thirsted. I've grieved as you have grieved. I've been tempted as you have been tempted. Trust me, the light has not been overcome. The Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. That idea is He's come to be with us, to abide with us, to make His home here in this dark world. But then this is what's so surprising. We could see that the the Son of God coming down to earth as this powerful moment where we see power and victory. If I was going to imagine the scene of God coming to earth, it would be in glory and power and majesty. But what is the picture that God has given us? And I want to read this prophecy from Isaiah. This is Isaiah 9, 2-7. I'm about to show a movie clip, so um, if you're zoning out, zone back in, because the movie clip isn't going to make sense without this little uh, verse. Isaiah 9, 2-7. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So it's speaking of the darkness that Israel is going through, and that there's going to be a light. 
And I want you to notice the dark language of war and oppression in this next verse, in verse 4 of Isaiah 9. It says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his oppressor and the rod of uh, the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor. So it's the idea of a bloody rod that's been beating on the backs of the people. It says, You have broken that rod as, the day, as on the day of Midian. And it says, For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult. So it's this idea of a trampling warrior, bloody boots, tearing down the people of God, tearing down the innocent. And it says, Every garment rolled in blood. It's this very visceral image that shows us of the darkness of the world. Every one of those boots, every garment will be burned as fuel for the fire. That's what God has come to do, to bring justice, to bring light into the darkness. And then we see the picture of how. But it's not the picture we'd expect of a great warrior come to cast out the darkness. It says the very next verse, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of, the, of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so it's the picture of this child that serves as a sunrise, as light spreads out and brings justice, not as quickly as we would like, but yet steadily. The light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And it says, And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. It's a radically different picture than we'd expect. But this Christ child has been upending empires and upending human sin since the day he was born. Now, my favorite Christmas movie is a movie called uh, Children of Men. Now, if you've ever seen that movie, you're like, what are you talking about? That's not a Christmas movie. That's not the type of uh, Christmas Eve uh, movie you would want to watch with your family. Because it's written, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a movie um, based on a book written by P.D. James. She's an Anglican author. Um, and the story is set 25 years in the future in Great Britain. And... In the past 20 years, all of a sudden, people have stopped being able, being able to have children. In 20 years, no children have been born, and all of the modern technology of the world is useless to bring about children into the world. And then the world falls into this chaotic uh, state, and there's war, and there's these people that are trying to gain power. And in the face of the darkness... A woman becomes pregnant. And the scene I'm about to show you is right after this baby was born. And I want you to see how disarming and how powerful the imagery is. And P.D. James, the author, said that this was her nativity story. It's bleak, but it shows that light that's come into the darkness. And in this scene, you'll see two warring factions that are fighting and trying to gain territory. And all of a sudden a light steps into the darkness. And see what it does to the people. So you can see this beautiful picture of the light that steps into the darkness. 
And yeah, the war continues in the world as we live in today, but the promise holds true that the true light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome the light. So this morning, I want to encourage you, whatever darkness that you see in the world, there's hope. Because the true light, the light of men, has come into the world. And the last thing I want to share with you is this. That we are not only called to believe in the light, to hope in the light, but to also walk in the light. And when I think about, and and John develops this theme in his gospel, when I think about the idea of walking in the light, what I think about is the idea of being spotless, having all my stuff together. But if you look at each passage where it talks about walking in the light and what Christ has come to do, it actually tells us that walking in the light means walking with the light. And the light isn't an impersonal force. It isn't an idea. It is a person, God, who's come down to be with us. And so walking with the light means this. Developing your relationship with God. Saying, God, I want you to shine on me. I want to spend time hearing the good news that you have come into the world and that you want a relationship with me. And yes, I will say, if you're in a place where you're not, you know, this past year, 2018, I haven't really been walking closely to Jesus. I want to give you a warning. If you're hungry, if you want that true light, it's going to be a little threatening as you walk towards Jesus because you're going to think that maybe His light is too bright for you. But there's never been a bruised reed that Jesus has broken. There's never been a flickering flame that He has quenched. Rather, His light that wraps around you is so gentle and kind. And He's patient to work with you in your sins that you've been hiding from Him. So walk in the light, brothers and sisters. He's inviting you to walk with Him. Because He loves you. And He's come to be with us. The Word of God has become flesh. The light has not overcome the darkness. O come, let us adore Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that the light is shining in the darkness and the dark has not overcome it. Shine Your light in the dark places in our lives, in our families, in our community, and in our world. And teach us this year to walk in the light of Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen.